Cheers! I'm quite excited about our next guest. He's a best-selling author and through the use of content helps Christians do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. In addition, he's a serial entrepreneur. He has built a couple of successful ventures of his own. For example, Vessel 360, for which he now serves as the executive chairman. And his bio seems never ending. <laughs> Another thing that it mentions is serving the White House under President George W. Bush. Needless to say that I'm honored to have Jordan Rayner himself on the show today. So welcome, Jordan. Thanks for having me, Jane. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Like, it's quite a resume. I know when I got your bio, I was like, how am I going to tell all of this? <laughs> so I kind of condensed it. Um, yeah. And I remember that when I found out your age, I was like, okay, whoa, someone has, you know, explored entrepreneurship while being in diapers. I look a lot older. <laughs> I look a lot older. That helps. Is that what people tell you? Oh, yeah. People <laughs> think I'm, you know, at least 10, 15 years older. Than ah, that. It's great. Okay. It's great. Yeah, it, that never happened to me. They always thought I was younger. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, good and bad. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I guess uh, entrepreneurship is in your blood and yes. you're probably good at it and you have lots to share about it. And I would definitely recommend the listeners to check out jordanrainer.com. I know somebody referred your podcast to me and it has helped me a lot. But uh, I know that you can probably give like tons of advice, um, but I also love to hear about failures and especially from yeah. successful entrepreneurs, because I think yeah. we can learn a lot about failures. So yeah. is there one major screw up that you learned a lot from and that you want to share with the audience? Well, there's more than one. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. And I've made, I've made this mistake a couple of times, which, you know, shame on me for making the same mistake twice. I, I, tell, I tell people all the time, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made as a founder is not firing somebody quickly enough, right? Knowing that somebody was the wrong person on the team and letting it go on for too long. There's a reason why it's conventional wisdom to hire slow and fire fast. It's conventional wisdom for a reason. It is one of the simplest yet wisest pieces of advice I can give is, you know, I've hired more than a hundred people throughout my career you know, take your time, hire well, invest that time on the front end. But, but even once you do that, there's still going to be some bad hires after the fact. You're still going to make mistakes and you got to have the courage to uh, be able to hold that person accountable. And if they're not the right fit, make that really clear, really quickly, obviously coaching them, giving ample time to fix mistakes, but when it's clearly not working, be willing to step away. Uh, that that's, that's a mistake. I see a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself early on make, and it's a, it's a really costly mistake to make. Okay, so but you would say you can maybe avoid it by putting more time into oh, yeah. the like figuring out who you want to hire in the first place. But anyways. oh yeah, oh yeah, and I the, the times when I made this mistake were uh, the, the the one instance I'm I'm thinking of. I I didn't hire this person. I inherited this person. I sold my business and uh, inherited this guy as a direct report. But yeah, we invest a ton of time in hiring. I spend a lot of my time as a founder just hiring senior level talent who will then in turn you know, make their own really smart hires. So we have a pretty rigorous process that's really time intensive. We probably spend, I don't know, three times as long as, I probably spend about three times as long as the traditional hiring manager, CEO uh, on hiring, but I think it's critically important. Uh, to get right. And that's, that's why we invest so much in it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, okay, so how do you hire well yeah. and how do you fire well? <laughs> Ooh, good questions. Uh, so listen, hiring well isn't rocket science. It, it just takes discipline and, and, and time. So you know, the first step in my process, which is probably similar to a lot of other people's process, is just getting real clear on what this person's going to do. What's the role? What are the job responsibilities? But then uh, from there, one thing we do differently is uh, instead of listing out a laundry list of things we want that person, uh, candidates to have in terms of requirements, we pick one thing. We look for one strength. What is the core strength of this role, right? So if it's a, a salesperson, right, uh, we try to be as specific as possible. Is the core strength, their ability to prospect for leads and set up meetings is the core strength their ability to pitch well in a room and close deals, what is it? Be as specific as humanly possible. Then once we've identified that core strength, that's when we list out the laundry list of other nice-to-haves. Everything else is a nice-to-have. Everything else, right? Everything else is subjective is, is a nice-to-have. Uh, and then uh, we go through a really rigorous process of, we have a two-column spreadsheet, real simple. What do we want to learn about this candidate throughout the process, starting with the core strength? And then how are we going to learn it? So rather than starting with just a, a list of interview questions, we're intentional about mapping those things out. What do we need to learn? How are we going to learn it in terms of interview questions or assignments or stuff in the application process or whatever? Mm -hmm. uh, and then once we have that, that's when we break out the hiring process. Okay, we're going to ask these questions at this stage of the interview process and map it all out from there. And it's pretty simple. We just take that spreadsheet, score people on a scale of one to five, overweight the core strength way above everything else that's kind of it uh and uh, that's how we hire how, how do you fire well man um <laughs> i think the movie moneyball have you seen the movie moneyball oh, no i haven't Brad seen Pitt? it yeah so go watch the movie it's a great movie uh there's a great scene about firing in there that i think like encapsulates as well you just got to be direct say it right at the beginning of the meeting don't drag it out people people can sense when you're firing mm -hmm. them you got to you got to get to the point real quickly and do it graciously and do it generously. Because listen, if you made a bad hire, you're to blame as the hiring manager, right? And so sure, sure the candidate is, is probably to blame, uh, at least somewhat, but you are too. And so think about how you can be gracious and generous. And as, you know, as a Christian, I think about how can I fire in a way that makes myself, makes my faith winsome to that person, mm -hmm. right? Uh, still doing what's best for the venture, right? But just just firing in a different way, firing the way that I would want to be fired, right? <laughs> is a good way to think about it. Yeah, if you want to be fired, but yeah, no, mm -hmm. it's a it's a good way to think about it. Yeah, place yeah. yourself in the other person's yeah, exactly. uh, perspective for sure. Exactly right. <laughs> okay, so I'm I really want to talk about the books as well that you wrote, yeah. or especially one. I uh, you're a best-selling author. You wrote two books, and I know there's more to come. So you wrote the Master of One. It's your second yeah. book after uh, Call to Create. And uh, Master of One is about finding the one thing you are really good at and pursue it to the excellence instead of being a jack of all trades. And I've read it and I think it's a must read. So, but you know, only hey. if my opinion matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love to talk about the content of the book because I think it's very important for um, every entrepreneur or basically anyone in life, I guess, to know your calling or the one, that one thing that you, you want to focus on. 
and I'm subscribed to your newsletters and, and I know that you shared in one recently about that less than one third of Americans are happy with their work and half of the workforce is checked out. And this survey was done like a couple of years ago. So yep. the pandemic probably has made those numbers even worse. So was this particular fact like one of the reasons or your motivation to write Master of One or yeah. like why, why did you come up with Master of One? Totally. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Master of One started with hypothesis, not, not necessarily about how can we be happiest at work, but how can we be most effective? How can we achieve excellence in our craft? You know, as, as a Christian, I believe that scripture commands that I be excellent in, or at least be pursuing excellence in all things for the glory of God and the good of those that I serve. And so uh, Master of One is a strategy to that end. Right. The mm-hmm. end is the pursuit of excellence in service of others. The strategy is this master of one. And I'll clarify something. I actually don't have a problem being described as a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. The problem I have is being described as a master of none. Right. Because I think for a lot of us, becoming a jack or a jill of all trades is kind of the inevitable byproduct of discerning our calling, of experimenting with it. When you experiment with a bunch of different stuff, you pick up a lot of different skills that inevitably make you a jack or of all trades. That's okay. The problem is when we fail to go deep on something, when we fail to go big on something, say, this is it. This is the thing that I can point to and say, I'm trying to get really, really good at this because I believe my work is service to others. And I want masters serving me when I go out to eat, when I buy a product, when I receive medical care. You don't want mediocre doctors or chefs or you know whatever. So why shouldn't we seek mastery in our craft, finding that thing that we can really sink our teeth into as a means of serving other people really well? And what I found in surveying uh, the academic literature in a bunch of interviews with world-class masters is passion, happiness, whatever you want to call it, follows mastery. There's this great researcher at Yale named Amy Rosneski, who has spent her whole career trying to figure out what leads people to describe their work as a calling, as as opposed to a Mm -hmm. job or a career. And the number one predictor of, of happiness at work is not whether or not somebody said they were passionate about the work before they started in a particular field. The number one predictor is the number of years they have spent practicing their craft. Passion, vocational happiness, it's a side effect of getting really good at what we do. We love what we do by getting really good at it and mm-hmm. serving other people really well. So yeah, that statistic that you said that you mentioned a few minutes ago that came from Gallup, that was part of the motivation for writing this book right? Like people are discontent at work. People hate their jobs. That's a problem because work is service to the world. And Master of One offers one hypothesis for a strategy to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. There's so much to unpack in that answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> because you said, you know, you don't have a problem with being a jack of all, jill of all trades. That's not, you know, what makes things problematic. It's like you have to focus eventually yeah. on being good at one thing. Yeah. And I know when I was reading the book, I love the example of C.S. Lewis yeah. you, you put in there because C.S. Lewis was like teaching and, and on a, like a radio show and he did like a couple of things. But then you, you gave the example that still he had one calling, but yeah. it was still kind of like hard to grasp because, yeah, so you said his one vocational thing was teaching, yeah. but still he was like writing and lecturing yeah. and broadcasting. Yeah. So yeah. 
Is the, is it because it was that broad? Like what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Elaborate. Yeah, no, no, I, to I totally get it. I get this question a lot. It's a really good question. Yeah. So kind of the backstory on how C.S. Lewis wound up in the book. I was, I was in London. I was having dinner with C.S. Lewis's stepson, who's a, who's a friend of mine. His name's uh, Douglas Gresham. And I was telling him about this new book I was writing. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's called Master of One. And I was just telling him, I was like, you know, I'm a little frustrated because your stepfather, who's one of my heroes, seems to be the exception to this rule, right? He was a radio broadcaster. He wrote fiction. He wrote nonfiction. He taught at, at Oxford, right? So he did all these different things. And Doug stopped me and he said, no, you don't get it. Like J he called his stepfather, Jack. Everyone knew him called C.S. Lewis Jack. He said, Jack knew that his one thing vocationally, the thing that he was best at in the world was teaching. Mm -hmm. And he saw writing fiction, writing nonfiction, being a radio broadcaster. He saw all of that as different expressions mm -hmm. of that core craft. But whatever he was doing, that was the craft that Jack was intentionally honing and getting better at, right? He, did, he, he, did, he wasn't necessarily concerned about being the best orator, right? Uh, he wasn't necessarily, necessarily concerned about uh, having the most flowery language in his writing. He cared about being able to teach people new concepts. And that was the thing that he was really trying to hone in his craft. And that was really helpful to me because, you know, I think some people's one thing is really specific. It might be a specific job or a specific company that they work at for 30 years. But for most of us, especially entrepreneurs, our one thing is really broad, right? So my one thing is entrepreneurship. And I can apply that in a couple of different directions at a time. Now, I, I'm finding as I get older and further along in my career, I apply that one thing with an increasing amount of focus. For example, today, I really truly have one thing, uh, and that is this one company that I'm building at George Rayner and Company. But, but that idea of the broad versus the specific one thing as evidenced by Lewis and a few others, that was really helpful to me and a lot of other mm -hmm. people who read the book. Yeah, I can imagine. It is helpful. For some, yeah. it might be very specific. And for others, it's like this one thing. Yeah. But now that you explain it this way, yeah, I can see that teaching was his one thing and that maybe, you know, he knew how to uh, bring something across through a fiction uh, yeah. story, right? Or yeah. through just talking on like a, a radio show. So that, exactly. that kind of makes sense because he yeah. knew the right words or the words he needed to use, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay, so... I know that, oh, I, let me just quote something from the book. So it yeah, says, please. it's about choosing between better and best. It is about examining your options and making a deliberate decision to choose the work that best combines your passions and gifts in an attempt to declare the excellencies of God and love your neighbor as yourself through masterful work. So you say it's, uh, it's choosing between better and best. Why is it so hard for people to choose one thing? Man, that's a really good question. Because in 2020 in our Western world, we have more options than ever before of work we could do, right? We have unprecedented opportunity, most of us listening do. Uh, and that makes it hard. It, mm -hmm. it's, 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 the, you know, it's the paradox of choice. Choice is overwhelming. You know, we grew up hearing we can be anything we wanna be. And to a large extent, that's true. I don't think ultimately that is true. I kind of refute that lie in the book. But when you grow up believing that, that can be paralyzing because if I could be anything I want to be, where do you even begin? Yeah. <laughs> where do you even start, right? I, so yeah. I think it's hard for us to choose because now more than ever, you know, 
we believe these lies that we could be anything we want to be and we could be everything we, we want to be. I think, I think especially technology has made this idea that we can uh, do multiple things in multiple disciplines at the same time, uh, particularly attractive. And yeah, I just don't buy it. Like, I just don't buy it. Like the, the 30 people I interviewed for this book, all the academic literature I was studying is like, yeah, it's like focus. It's like going big on one thing at a time in a mm-hmm. season of life. And I, I do think people's one thing changes over time. I think there are different seasons where, you know, maybe in one season it's being an entrepreneur, maybe in another season it's being a teacher or whatever, but you got to go big on something for a season of life in order to achieve that 10,000 hours of purposeful practice that, you know, has become common wisdom is, is necessary for mastering any craft. Mm-hmm. Okay. So too many options and people are probably too impatient to- Yes. Oh, absolutely. That was me. That's my story, right? First part of my career, you know, I was changing things every you know, 18 months. It's just the lack of discipline over time, which I talk about in the book is one of the three keys to mastering anything vocationally. You just got to stay with something long enough, not to just fall in love with it, but stay in love with it over a really long period of time. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and like one of the things I, I actually underlined in your book was about that, you know, people uh, say that you can achieve anything you want as long as you <laughs> believe it and you do the hard work and that you actually said, no, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to be good at something, you actually have to invest time and, and, and have to practice. So it's not that you cannot achieve, well, anything. You can achieve something if you really want to work hard for it, I guess. Yeah. Or do you think it still has limitations? I think it has limitations. I mean, listen, I, I, uh, I'm five foot six. There's no way I'm ever playing professional basketball. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Right. Like, they, they, but, but to a large degree, yes, we have more opportunity than ever before. Most of us can do anything we want to, so long as we work hard and have great and have God's grace and favor in that thing. But I would question you know, using my own example. I would question whether spending 15 years trying to make it in the NBA is the best use of my time, yeah. right? That may be serving my dream, but is that the best way that I can serve the world with the gifts and opportunities that God has given me? Probably not. Probably not. There's probably a much more opportune way for me to be serving others uh, with my time. So that's, that's kind of how I think about it. That's a lens through which I think about it. Mm, okay. Okay. So when we talk about the one thing or, mm-hmm. or the calling and, and people want to figure out what it is, I know they have to read the book for sure. No, um, I don't think you do. <laughs> but uh, like how, how can people discover their one thing? Yeah. How, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So the book outlines a, a four-step process that, yeah, I didn't invent. I observed by studying the lives of world-class masters and at the highest level, it's, it's step one is exploration. Step two is choosing what your one thing is going to be. Step three is eliminating everything else that's not in line with that one thing. And then step four is kind of this lifelong step of, of mastery. But that first step is probably the most important, that exploration step, taking the time to develop hypotheses of what you think you might be really great at and actually putting them to the test and experimenting rapidly to get learning and figure out where you can serve others really well through your work. And I think, you know, honestly, I think we ask people to choose their one thing way too early in life and in their careers. Uh, And so, you know, I encourage people, hey, take as much time as you need to explore and experiment and gather data as to where you're serving other people really well. But once it's clear once it's clear that you found this intersection of giftings and to a lesser extent passions, uh, 
yeah, you got to be willing to commit to that. You got to be willing to say, okay, this is my lane. I'm putting all my eggs in this basket until the Lord says otherwise and go hard after that. That's what people don't do. We're really good at experimenting with stuff. We're really good at trying a lot of different things. Very few of us ever get to a place where we say, okay, this is it. I'm committing to this and I'm going to go hard after mastering this particular craft. So would you say, because you said, you know, we're, we're kind of asked in a very early stage in life, yeah. what we want to do, like what you say, is it even possible to find your calling if you're, you know, in, in the beginning of your early career or life? I think it is. I know a lot of people who I, I was, I was interviewing somebody for my podcast early on who knew when she was seven years old, she wanted to be a professional ballerina. And she committed that one. And I asked her, I was like, do you wish you had committed earlier to that? She's like, absolutely. I wish I had committed when I was five. Mm. So I think there's some people who just like know it, but you know, I've got, I've got young kids. I got three young kids. And um, right now we're just encouraging them to explore and experiment with a bunch of different stuff. Right. So my seven year, uh, six year old, who's my eldest is doing piano and she is playing tennis and uh, she and I are running a business together on the side. We have a little Etsy store together. Uh, and so she's experimented with a lot of different stuff. Now, one thing we do, we've adopted um, Angela Duckworth in her book, Grit, talks about the hard thing rule. So she requires that her kids commit to one hard thing at a time that they mm. purposefully practice uh, every day of the week. So we do that with our kids. Uh, so for Ellison, that's piano right now. She practices that five days a week. We don't require her to do it every day, but five days a week. So yeah, so th there is that idea of going big on something, but we're also trying to get them to experiment with a lot of different stuff. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, whether you're a kid or you know, you're 35, whatever. Yeah, no, definitely. I think definitely when you're older, because then people think, no, I missed, you know, I missed the boat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like I can't experiment anymore. Or, you know, what if I'm going to fail? You know, yeah. that, that big question. But it, it, it kind of makes me think also, you, you talked about like um, the ballerina who had her calling when she was mm -hmm. seven. You know, those people are out there. I'm always yes. kind of a little bit jealous about them. I shouldn't be, but totally, yeah. they knew like what they wanted to do from childhood on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know I, I read this book of, uh, or I like I'm doing this uh, leadership course of John Maxwell. And he basically also explains that God has like different ways of revealing your calling and sometimes it can be this thunderbolt like paul you know in the bible and sometimes it can be you know it will take forever yeah. uh and every time you take a step closer to it it will become more clear and less yeah. foggy i guess yeah i think that's right so and one thing that will definitely help clearing that up is probably just experimenting with things that's right That's right. Trying a lot of different things, trying yeah. a lot of different things until you, until, until you find not necessarily what's bringing you the most immediate happiness, but what's serving other people really well. That's the key. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. We look for this immediate cosmic sense of satisfaction when we try something new. It's, that just doesn't happen that mm -hmm. often, right? Like uh, look for where fruit is sprouting up and where you're serving other people Really well. We're talking to a lot of entrepreneurial people on this podcast. It's a great lesson in a startup, right? Mm -hmm. Find where customers are saying, yes, more of this uh, and, and pour more resources into that thing. Definitely connecting with people. Oh, yeah. Have Hopefully. conversations with them and see, you know, what you're trying exactly. to build makes sense. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, what would be your advice for people who are at this point in life they're starting out their business and they're they're insecure like they don't know if the, what they're gonna do if, if it's gonna be successful what would you tell these people Ooh, 
Man, I love that question. Yeah. So if you share the faith of Jane and myself as a Christian, you can take great courage in the fact that, and this is going to sound controversial on the surface, but let me explain. Don't, don't turn it off. We worship a God who takes risk, takes risks to create for the good of others. And that's really the, the essence of entrepreneurship. An entrepreneur is anyone who takes a risk to create something new for the good of others. You know, and when you look at Genesis, I think you can call God the first entrepreneur. In fact, Tim Keller, uh, one of the most beloved pastors and writers of our day, is called God an entrepreneur. He clearly created something new, clearly created for the good of others. God had no need to create the world. He was experiencing perfect love with the Trinity for eternity before the world. So he didn't need to create, he created for the good of others to serve us and to extend his glory. And I would argue God took a risk, right? You might not want to call it risk. You might want to call it sacrifice. But God made the world, made human beings with free will, knowing that we would choose to sin, knowing what it was going to cost them, knowing that he was going to have to sacrifice his son in order to redeem this world. That's the utmost sacrifice, right? So Mm -hmm. not risk in the sense how we risk. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. Obviously, he knew it was going to happen. We don't when we start a new venture, but he still still created. He still took a risk in that more awesome way, right? Mm -hmm. He still sacrificed as a way of serving us. So we, as his image bearers, have risk ingrained in us. It is in our DNA to take big swings, to take risks as a means of serving others. Creating something new always requires sacrifice. Sacrifice of capital, sacrifice of reputation, sacrifice of opportunity costs. It's just part of the journey, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, my encouragement is you know, risk boldly. And as Christians, even if you fail, you still have Christ at the end of the day. And that is... Should be the enough. ultimate sense of saying it should be enough, and and that's it's hard to make that connection between your head and your heart. I've struggled with that throughout my career as an entrepreneur, but ultimately we do have peace with God, and that that is the ultimate peace that we all need to risk boldly. Yeah, wow. And I also think one of the things I learned from entrepreneurship is that you know risk taking really asks from you that you trust God that He yeah. will provide whatever Absolutely. is necessary which I think risk is a, is a difficult one because yeah. you know it's it's going to be there in your entrepreneurship in, in yeah. whatever you're going to try, you know, yeah. to, to set up. Exactly um, right. But as you said, it's like it's, it's in God's character as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Ah, wow. And would you say, so one question that came to my mind, yeah. I know you talk a lot about, you know, that we need to pursue excellency and, you know, work for the good of others. Would you say that would, be enough or having that one thing will satisfy even more? Yeah, I, I think the one thing is a path to that. I think I think finding okay. your one thing and really focusing on it is a path to excellent work that serves other people really well. I think it's just a means to that end. I, I, yeah, I don't, there's no biblical mandate that I see for this master of one strategy. I do believe there's a biblical mandate to do all things for the glory of God, 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians 10, 31, right? What's the yeah. glory of God? What's his character? It's a character of excellence. I don't think scripture commands us to achieve excellence, but I do think it commands us to do all things, to strive for, to pursue 
excellence in all things. And that, there's a big difference between those two things. And so the master of one strategy is just a means to that end. It's how do we mm. do our most exceptional work for his glory and the good of others? And this is just one idea. Uh, and one idea that you find a, a startling number of high performers following uh, day in, day out. It's just this continual process of refinement and getting more and more focused on that core craft. Okay. Yeah. Because you could say, you know, it could be anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that you do as a job to be excellent right. in, as long That's as exactly you just right. pursue excellence in everything That's that exactly you do. Right. That's Every exactly day you, right. yeah, you wake up, you have an opportunity to portray God's image. Amen. Amen. Well okay. said. One last question. Where can we find more about your work and what you do? And perhaps like the new book that's coming out. Yeah. I don't know when, but. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a while. Uh, okay. We're excited about it. It's, it's looking like it's going to be October 2021. Uh, but I'm really excited about it. it. It is based on the feedback we're getting from early readers. Uh, they say it's the best book I've written yet. So we'll see if that mm. holds up. But um yeah, very easy to find me at jordanrainer.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. Got lots of free content for entrepreneurs. We've got a weekly devotional. We have a, a weekly podcast that's growing like a weed. So lot, lots of good stuff for there for you to access, including the link to the book. Pretty cool. Any book that you're reading right now that we should read as well? Ooh. I, I know you're, you're a big reader. <laughs> I am a big reader. Not that I'm reading right now, but that I just wrapped up. I read it for a second time and loved it even more the second time. Uh, the Search for God in Guinness, the Guinness Brewing Company in, in uh. Dublin, is such a remarkable story. Founded by Arthur Guinness, who loved Jesus. And really, the creation of the brewery was kind of in response to the gin craze. People were, uh, people were getting drunk constantly because water was unsafe back in the 1700s in Ireland and they were drinking gin instead and Arthur Guinness said I'm gonna make a beer that's way less in alcohol than gin and is more nutritious and is gonna serve mankind well and he created the Guinness Stout and it was it was out of this devotion of the Lord that he created it and they just built an amazing business that serves their employees really well uh, and just really thinks deeply about how the gospel should be integrated into a venture. And so the book's just extraordinary. I love oh, it. Great. Oh, I really want, want to read it now. I, it's because really I remember I, I recently did like the, the call to create yeah. Bible plan that you yeah. have on your yeah, version yeah. and you mentioned him there. And I was yeah. like, this is it's amazing. It's, it's a great example. The Guinness story. It's not, it really isn't well-known, but it's such a well-known global brand. Mm -hmm. um it's an yeah. amazing story and i, I didn't can't recommend yeah. book like I, I didn't know you know yeah. that the owner you know yeah. was actually a christian and like yeah. built this amazing company that yeah, was so incredible. good for his employees yeah yeah okay great i'm gonna wrap it up jordan rayner thank, thank, you, thank you so much for Thanks your for time thank you for listening to the born to fly podcast if you liked it please leave a review on google podcast or apple podcast and don't forget to share it with your friends if you'd like to know more about Born to Fly, go to borntofly.faith. There you can discover our How to Find Your Calling course and a community for like-minded entrepreneurs. Looking forward to having you back next time.